you know, I was getting getting the podcast started. It was an interesting experience doing this. Like again, it's been a it's been a while since I've had to think about any of this, and I had forgotten how many different disconnected podcast sources there are these days. Yes. Um, I listen to my podcast with Overcast, which sources from the iTunes or Same. Apple Podcast directory, and that's it, right? So in my head, right. Apple Podcasts is the de facto place yeah, for like podcasts. There's four. Right. So that's where I put it first. I figure if it's not an Apple Podcast, it doesn't exist, right? That, that's that basically true. it. That's a fact, actually. Yes, it's absolutely a fact, which... Um, which was a pretty painless process. It took a couple days. I think it might have been quicker, but I didn't have email forward set up, and I set up a separate email address just for this in case I disappear one day and you need to take over, right? Um, Thank you for your level of redundancy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So uh, that was relatively easy, and so I, I said it, and I forgot about it, and, and you know, went and checked, and, hey, look, it's there. So I figured we were done, right? Um, I mean, it turns out people listen to podcasts on Spotify, which is awesome. You know, a couple of folks. I've never done it. I love Spotify for music, but my go-to is Overcast as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently a couple of folks in your group at least were like, oh, is this going to be on Spotify? And I'm like, oh shit, that's right. Spotify is a thing. Yeah. They were so excited too, by the way. Everybody's like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I have been waiting. Waiting for waiting for something else to to yeah. come out. Um, so I'm like, oh, that's right. I guess Spotify is a thing for podcasts now. Like I use it for music and Same. that's, I, that's all I'll ever think of Spotify as being is a music thing. Yeah. So I plugged that in and that was again, relatively painless, but just the RSS feed, right? Yeah. Which is, which is great. Um, if there's anyone out there that uses Stitcher or anything like that, I'm sorry, you'll never see it there. I, I, I'm die Stitcher die <laughs> fundamentally against the way Stitcher does podcasts so i'm sorry you'll have to use something else it blows my mind how fragmented uh podcast distribution really is yeah. um i don't even know i tried plugging it into the google play podcasts thing i don't know if it worked yet honestly uh it gave me errors about the cover art which literally no one else has ever no other source is like complained even the least bit like the feed is perfect according to everyone else except for google so I don't know if that's there. Um, if you're hoping it's going to show up there, I can't. I can't tell you if it will or won't work. Um, honestly, there are too many other sources for podcasts. I don't know if I'm going to put any more effort into it, frankly. But this really should be a solved problem. I think at this point, the yeah. fact that all the directories don't just like mirror off each other seems really strange. But then they wouldn't need to exist. That's the hard part. You know what? Right? I'm entirely fine with that too. <laughs> well, so am I as the consumer. Here's the thing. All that should really happen is we host on Libsyn, which I, I am a fan of. That's like the go-to one that most people use. It works. It's relatively cheap, assuming you're compressing your files. And then they just send that out to like, here's, no, here's what needs to happen. Libsyn needs to have a paid feature. It's a one-time fee. It's like 20 bucks. And then they have a script that just does that for you. It just submits you to all of them. Done. That would be nice. Problem solved. That's it. Expansion revenue. This is a business podcast. Yeah. This is how you solve problems. <laughs> Libsyn, if you're listening, there you go. Um, they totally are. I it, it, admittedly, we're also not using Libsyn, so I don't know how much that matters. But, uh, you know, I come from a tech background, so I built everything almost by hand because I found that to be easier than 
one of the one of the hardest parts of this from my perspective was deciding which platforms to use for what right like in my head that's that's almost harder than just going with what i know even if it's a little bit more complicated and sure. so everything is you know self-hosted more or less ideally no the one will ever notice engineer. the engineer right exactly <laughs> i'd like to thank aws for their uh for their help in their making this happen um like like literally like the audio files are stored in s3 and redistributed using CloudFront, like it's oh, that's great. That's <laughs> it, it's so I'm not an engineer, so the wholesale made easy podcast was on Libsyn. <laughs> yeah, that is plug and play. It is. It, it absolutely is. Um, from my perspective, it was I already use all of these things elsewhere. I'm familiar with them. I it's don't your, see it's your a stack, need, right? Right. I don't see a need to spend additional money to replicate what I'm already familiar with. Yes, yeah. which at I the, would agree with. Yeah, it's at this scale. If it if it ever becomes a point where we actually need all of the additional tools and unique qualities that services like Libsyn provide, then I'm happy to switch. But right now, I feel like spending the least amount of money possible sounds like a great deal. So we're not even like ten episodes in. <laughs> so it's like right. stay lean, right? Right. And right. I think that's a good point. Is like regardless of if it's a project, if it's a business, stay lean as long as you can. Yes. Absolutely. Because why not? Like you, like you haven't, in my opinion, like if you haven't hit a critical threshold of either revenue, downloads, whatever, eh, you should wait. Really, I mean, you you should wait to validate something to be like, oh, this is taking off. Okay, now let's invest X, Y, and Z into it because now it it actually makes sense and it will have a positive ROI, mm-hmm. right? It's like we could right now be like, oh, we're starting a podcast. Let's go spend five thousand dollars on equipment. Why? You you say that, but I'm I'm sitting here talking in front of a $500 microphone, a $100 microphone shock mount, and a $100 microphone arm attached to a $150 interface. <laughs> so, but mine, I might not be the bright, the best person to say don't spend money on your. <laughs> you right know? now, now notice I said it, not you, right? Because my setup that is a hundred dollar mic. That would like never come out of my mouth. Five dollar boom arm that doesn't have any shock mount whatsoever, which will be <laughs> updated, but still. It, it 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 demonstrates my point flawlessly, right? But for for your needs though, it does still work really well. I I get oh, it. Yeah. I I spend the money I do on these things because I like the things, not because I feel like this is I have to spend a minimum of eight hundred dollars in order right. to be successful here. Like that was never the thought process, and I think that's the differentiator here. Um, you I would never like the equipment. I would never recommend to anybody spend money on the things that I've bought. If you're, this is your very first time you've ever talked to people or any done any kind of uh, public digital speaking, if you will, there are so many other options that are so much cheaper and will get you 95% of the way there. You know, this is more of just a, a hobby. A hobby is a, that's a stretch, really. A passion. It's, it's an interest. Audio okay. is an interest. So this that is an easy sense. way for me to satisfy that without having to take up a corner of my office with a rack of audio gear like believe me that's crossed my mind you have no idea how tempting it is since i have zero need for it whereas this does get some use out of it so that's that's my 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 weak mental argument and it it works no complaints i can roll with it i can roll with it all right i think we should start the show let's do it cue the music welcome to growth episode number five the robot of the show So, how the hell are you? 
Good. It's uh, it's been an interesting but productive week. Good. I I have created three separate slide decks on three separate topics of which I'm very excited about. So I'm presenting a lot more, speaking a lot more, but now everything's remote. <laughs> so I am doing online speaking for events that would have been in person. And each one is completely different. So like literally up until the moment we jumped on Skype here to start recording, I was wrapping up a presentation on like advanced wholesale and private label growth tactics, Awesome, which I'm presenting on tomorrow, which is pretty exciting. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. So we're, we're right now, as we're recording, we're, we're theoretically either at or close to the peak of the whole COVID-19 situation. So from a business standpoint, it's like all hands on deck, right? It's red lights, what's happening, what's going to happen. All your forecasts are completely negligible at the moment. Um, it's it's a good time to to kind of reflect on what we've built so far and kind of where we've gotten to in the past year, a little over a year, which is pretty amazing. But then to have the clarity to say, okay, well, where do we want to go in the next two to five years specifically? Like we know the high level stuff, but then it's getting a little bit more tactical. So we're using the time to be a little bit more strategic as much as we can, obviously. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that are just unknowns that you can't plan or factor in, but been productive, man. Writing, writing more articles, um, guest posts, stuff like that. Just getting back into the creating content, uh, which I really enjoy doing. I like writing. I like speaking, obviously. And it's it's fun to take the bit of knowledge that I do have and then just share it <laughs> just give it out it's pretty fun how about yourself i uh i just came back from a supplier i know uh dylan you are very much a fan of never touching any of your inventory and oh yes i generally subscribe to that um but this particular supplier is local maybe a half hour from here and it's a relatively heavy product per unit for its size so it's actually a lot cheaper even if i calculate per mile to just go get it um, I mean, obviously time is worth something, but I took today off actual regular job vacations. So it's free, I guess, if I measure it like that, like I'm getting, <laughs> getting paid all the same, whether I sit on the couch, right. Or go fetch this inventory. So just when did that, it's literally right here. Like I rolled in like two minutes before we started this and I haven't even touched any of it yet. Um, but it's given me a lot to think about when it comes to, uh, how to package your products for shipping. If you're selling physical products, like how do you get it from point A to point B safely? Um, you know, anyone who's bought anything off of Amazon will know they put in minimal effort, right? You get your box, you shake it, things are rattling around in there. You have no idea if it's broken. Um, they they try, but because humans do it and they have to do it quickly, it's often lacking. So, and we hate humans here on this podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, definitely. We are anti human. Sorry. Uh, pro robot. Go robots. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging me. It's been interesting. The, the items I'm shipping are not really fragile, but they are perishable, which brings a unique challenge in that. Okay. As it gets warmer, uh, you know, here it's, you know, 45 for a low, 66 for a high. So it's still within a safe temperature range. But say if I'm sending this to Florida, right, where it's, where it's hot, insert temperature of 80, hold on. 75. I'll tell you. Oh, hold on. 
This is making for great podcasting right here. (laughs) This is real time. Okay, actually, oddly enough, it's 68 outside right now. And it's 2.18 p.m. there. Yeah, that's actually kind of, I feel like that's that's colder than I would expect. Yesterday was in the 80s, though. Yeah, so in my case, I'm having to plan for these wide temperature ranges, something that I never used to think about. You know, most of the products I sold went to an Amazon warehouse and they dealt with it, right? But now that I'm handling it, these are interesting problems to solve. I'll call them interesting because there's multiple ways to handle this. You know, if you've ever received anything like like a Blue Apron or a HelloFresh, right? You know, it comes in a box. It has the the shiny the shiny wrap inside with the massive ice blocks. How do I take something like that and scale it down into a smaller, say, 10 by 8 by 4? That's the box I send most of the stuff out in. How do I make that happen in this smaller box without eating all of my profits at the same time? That's been an interesting challenge. I haven't entirely solved it yet, but I'm getting close. Uh, Next month, I want to start it because I know May is roughly when things start getting warm in most of the country. Here... Not so much, but, you know, I have to think about my customers on the East Coast, New York, may they rest in peace, Florida. Um, I, I'm noticing a lot of a lot of customers on the Eastern Seaboard where it tends to get hot and moist a lot quicker. And it's, I, I find it, I find it immensely satisfying and entertaining almost trying to figure out, it's like, it's like a puzzle. Right, I have this box that I've bought a ton of. Now I have to figure out how to get my item in here, get it safely packed so it doesn't get damaged, but it can also stay cool. Okay. I, I, I so, see the wheels turning in, in your head. Yeah, because you know, I'm, I'm the robot of the of the show, so I, I'm always analytical and thinking. But um, okay, so is this a problem? That's a short-term problem only because currently you cannot ship into FBA. But once you can ship into FBA, it's no longer your problem, right? That's correct. The reason why okay. I'm shipping in the summer is Amazon has this this multiple prohibition window from May mm-hmm. 1st to September 31st where okay. the warehouses get too warm. They will not allow things of perishable nature in there or rather multiple nature specifically if you have fresh fruit, right? Don't ever send it in ever. Um, right. It, it's more multiple specifically, but okay. I like to think of it just perishable overall because that's an easier term when I'm looking for materials to yeah right it's a good term to to search for because (laughs) you always have to think in google search terms i've learned that Mm -hmm. um which is super helpful okay so let's think here let's let's problem solve a little bit what specifically not the product obviously but like what what material substance i I guess like i assume it's not liquid no otherwise we really wouldn't care it's going to be more gel form right or close closer to these are solids that have a low melting point, as in okay. sub 100, sub 90 oh, really? Fahrenheit. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So now the question is, we can solve it. That's not the problem. It's, it's, it's basic science, right? The hard part is doing that profitably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's where it gets that's, tough. That's it right there. Like I could, get, I could get large boxes and massive ice packs, you know, even just the single use stuff, and I can just shove all sorts of cold shit into a box and be done, but now I don't have any money left. Yeah. And there is limitations from a material standpoint 
because you're not throwing ice cubes in here. You're not throwing, you know, the ice pack you buy from your grocery store into these things because that's not now they're going to they're going to um, perspire. Right. They're going to sweat. That might actually ruin packaging. That might ruin the shipping. We have a problem there. So now you actually need a specific material that can at least hold or have a slower decay function, if you will, to be nerdy for the temperature, but not sweat. Like there's a lot of constraints there, which is why it's tough. It is. Yes. And it is. It is definitely solvable. I'll tell you what I've what I've figured out so far to back up a tiny bit. I ordered some pretzels of all things, fresh baked pretzels from a company called Eastern Standard Provisions. They 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 bake pretzels in various forms and send them out fresh. They only ship Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday because their shipments are uh, two-day, FedEx two-day, and FedEx two-day doesn't arrive on Saturdays. So the latest they can ship is Wednesday to make sure it shows up on Friday so it's not sitting in a warehouse all weekend, right? That in itself is also a thing I have to take into consideration. This item, I put it in a box. It has to stay roughly room temperature for three days at most. I use the postal service, priority mail, one to three business days. Since they ship on Saturday, that makes it a little easier. I essentially have to ensure it's not going to sit anywhere outside of the customer's possession for more than three business days or more than three calendar days, rather. Which means you need a buffer day, though, too. From a customer support standpoint, you need at least half a day, ideally a whole day of a buffer. Right. So one way I'm solving that is not shipping anything out on Friday. Okay, that makes sense. So if it's if it's an item, I, I have set my Amazon Seller Central account and my shipping plan for these items or shipping preferences, whatever you want to call it, to allow for an extra uh, handle day. Right. And they're only counting Monday through Friday, so that makes it easy. If I have two handle days, that means if I get an order on Friday, I can wait until Monday to send it. Mm-hmm. Or if I get okay. an order on Thursday, I can also wait until Monday to send it. And okay. I'm still within what the customer has been presented as far as an estimated delivery date. I'm still meeting all of the performance requirements that Amazon has set forth for self-fulfillment. That solves the buffer problem by itself. Because then if I send it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday is still a delivery day. That's within the three business day window. So that's okay. mostly solved. It's solved well enough that I don't have to think about well, what what happens and it takes four days, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it could, but there's no... But that's the exception, not right. the rule. And there's no material out there that holds coldness long enough for four business days. It's just not... Not, not in a shipping, not in a, a shipping capacity, like a, a cardboard box. Right. Like, there's, there's a reason every food, like, food prep company sends everything two-day. Or in a way that it'll show up in two days because the materials yep. they're packing in there are good for two days. I've had blue aprons show up in three days and I told them, hey, this showed up late and they were like, throw it away. <laughs> Jeez. Because the risk of something going bad in there goes way right. up on day three or day four. In my case, it doesn't spoil because it's not like fresh fruit or onions or sure. chicken or something like that. That if it doesn't stay below 40 degrees, it's just bad entirely. I'm more trying to just create a nice, comfortable ceiling where the item can be 30 degrees, the item can be 70 degrees. It's fine. I just don't want it to be 100, right? So that's, I'm just prolonging the inevitable here. So what I've built so far is a combination of U-Lines 
They call them cool shield bubble mailers. Okay. They are your, your basic envelope bubble mailer, pull off the strip, seal it. But it also has like a foil type outside. It's like insulation. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, if you've ever seen any kind of highly reflective, like a, um, like a fire blanket, you know, yep. it's the exact same concept, right? It's preventing heat from coming in, any kind of infrared, all that stuff just bounces right off. And then on the inside will go a roughly six ounce one-time use cold pack, also from Uline. Okay. It's roughly the same size as the item going in there. So it covers pretty much entirely on the, the exposed surface. The, it, if you think it's, it comes in like a gift package that the bottom has its own kind of insulation because it's a tray and it's all nice and neatly formed. But the top surface is more or less exposed. So that, that gets indirect contact with the exposed surface, which keeps it cool enough. Um, through experiments that I've done, I took, an, I took a cool shield shoved the product in it, shoved a six ounce ice pack in it, sealed it up, and then I put it in a USPS padded flat rate, which if no one's ever shipped flat rate before, it is savior for any kind of cost-effective shipping mechanism whatsoever. Like it's it's $7.75 business rate. It can weigh six ounces. It can weigh six pounds, and it's exactly the same price. As long as it as fits. As long as it fits, as long, it yeah. ships. Yes, exactly. It fits. <laughs> It ships. Don't fold the envelope sidebar. I was doing that for a while to make it smaller. Instead, like I wasn't cutting it or doing anything weird. There was just, there was enough space in the envelope where I could fold it in half and then seal it over itself. Yeah. They, although I've done that probably 300 times, I had dropped them off at the post office in person to a person who I didn't regularly see. I was definitely chastised for that. He was not a fan of my folding mechanism. He he claimed I could be charged extra for it, which is interesting because it's less space. But okay. right, like thinking about initially, the only other way it could be charged is first class because it was less than a pound. First class is less money, so I don't really see the incentive there. But whatever, <laughs> the postal service is strange, so I won't begin yes, to. I have learned this. I won't begin to understand. And by that. the way, if you if you ever have to insure something for like three grand, they don't know how to react. Right. They're like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, I need to insure this up to $3,000, please. What is it? You don't need don't to worry about it. it. It's literally a watch, but still. And they're like, you're shipping $70. Is that okay? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm shipping a $3,000 watch. I don't care that the shipping is $70. Right. That's, <laughs> like, that's the cost that's of doing not business. That's the problem. Exactly. It's so funny. Yeah. That's one of those things, the high value stuff I tend to send like express. Yeah. Two day. We, we usually do like USPS is still technically okay, but it's two day insured up to the, the price of, you know, whatever you paid for the watch or the person that paid you for the watch. So if anything does go wrong, you're good and uh, signature required, obviously. This, this experiment that I did with the cool shield mailer with an ice pack inside sealed up, put inside a padded white envelope, which also helps with temperature because white reflects more than it absorbs. So now I've got that double layer. Um, I left it sitting on my kitchen counter 24 hours, just as is. The next day, the pack itself was, it wasn't solid anymore, which is what I'd expect. But the item inside was still cool enough that I felt comfortable sending that as is. Like that was, that in my opinion was good enough to get it to most destinations without any additional thought. Okay. So I have a 72 cent 
shielded envelope dingus and a roughly 40 cent single use ice pack. And that's not that bad. It's not absolutely not. And it's, it gets where it gets expensive is weight bulk. Like if you start getting bigger items and you have to put a ton of it in there, you have the weight sure. and the larger ice packs start getting really pricey. But like the six ounce that are probably the size of a small book, you know, eight by five by one, roughly. Yeah, it, it works well enough. I'm not I'm not again, I'm not trying to send it so it stays forty degrees when it arrives, right? That's not my 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 right. goal. I just, just don't want to not it. melt it. Exactly. Exactly. So I have there's a lot of room there. Um good. Most of the warm places, it'll still arrive in two business days. And I can wait until the last minute, shove the pack in there, seal it all up, and immediately drop it off. And then the clock can start. That's right. that works for me. For items that go in a box, I haven't entirely solved the problem yet, but it would be roughly, roughly similar. As long as I can keep the product away from the edges of the box, keep some kind of insulation, air insulation between it and the box itself, that'll go a long way as well. Um, the box itself can get a little warm. The air around it, around, around the product can have time to absorb some of that heat. And then it gets to my shielded envelope. And now that's yet another barrier. And then you have the cold pack inside it. It's yet another barrier, right? The more barriers I can create between the product and the outside world, the better off I am. And that's ultimately how I've been able to solve this relatively inexpensively is just creating space between the product and the open air, especially in sweaty Alabama or Florida where it's, you know, it could be 100 degrees that day, right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And humid, right? So everything's going to be sweaty. So that kind of sucks um no okay so that's interesting so relatively simple straightforward solution the hard part still though is on larger items where the cost structure is just a little bit different i would argue that your margins should still be healthy enough on those to to warrant you know that cost structure and it not be a big deal obviously like you want more margin than than less margin but it's one of those situations where I, i see a lot of sellers get into where they go, oh, I, I don't want to use a prep center because it's going to cost me a dollar per unit. But you're making 80% ROI. And you, let's say, based off the dollar, it takes you down to 70% ROI. Like, ah, that's just not as good as blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, you, you can't play this not as good as because you can play that ad infinitum, right? What you have to do is say, what does this cost enable me to do? Because you could very well say, well, it would be more profitable for me to not have to use this cold pack and this blah, blah, blah. You're correct. But you could also then now not ship it because you can't get it there and it's going to melt and now you lose that product line, right? So a lot of sellers get stuck in just simply not accepting the reality. And I think this is business owners as a whole, right? Like, like well, if in an ideal world, this was this way, it's like, yeah, but you can play that all day long. But it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The simple fact is, what's the reality? What are the factors that we cannot change? In which case, if we can't change them, we need to play within those factors. And we just need to work around them, right? And be like, hey, am I willing to accept a little higher cost structure for this product line? Yes or no? It's completely up to you. Um, but but a lot of sellers do kind of get stuck with, well, this is a problem, so I'm just going to drop the line. It's like, what? No, just solve the problem. <laughs> like it's like really in your mind, was it that hard of a problem to solve? Yeah, it's what I what I find is a, 
a lot of a lot of folks that are new to this, they're really allergic to seeing any kind of decrease in their return or their margin for any reason. Right. Yeah. They're they're focused on making as much as I possibly can off of this item. And the moment they find out that it's going to cost 50 more cents, it's it's a reflex almost without even having to think about it. They're they're immediately against it, regardless of what it is. Right. Like if if you line told me, okay, your shielded envelopes are going from 72 cents to 90 cents, be like, all right, that's fine whatever I buy these, I literally buy these by the hundreds, right? Like podcasters, we have this thing where we, we point things out to each other, but you can't see this, but off, you know, off my back, right. I have two boxes of them, right? Right. Like I just, I I buy them by the chunk and it's great. What I found really helpful when I first started planning this out, especially the temperature considerations was, can I pad my, uh, my ROI ahead of time so I can absorb some of this additional cost later. So, you know, shipping cost might be a little higher now, even though I don't need it. But later on, when I need to spend that extra money on those materials, the shipping cost could very well stay the same and absorb that. And I'm still not, my my ROI for my item has never changed. Right. Because I built that buffer ahead of time. So the law of averages is going to help me out here where, you know, that extra maybe dollar or so that didn't directly go towards shipping materials will, it's fine. It's totally fine. At, at the end of the day, it's all going to balance out and I'm not going to think twice about it. Wait, so are you saying that you're optimizing for the average profit, not the every single unit profit? Imagine that. Here's another <laughs> yes. crazy observation. Too many people want every single sell that they get to be the most profitable. And God forbid, the next one is one penny less in profit. The world is ending. The simple fact is, that doesn't matter. The per unit, in terms of you know the iteration of every single um, sale, doesn't matter. It's the average. It's basic economics, but we, we tend to not care about economics in our space. But guess what? Those laws very much still exist, and we should still consider them and factor them into our decision-making. Because, yeah, you could absolutely jack up your price and be like, well, every single uh, sale that I get is going to be super profitable. Yeah, but you're going to lower your sales volume, so actually by you raising your price, you're making less money in total. Now let's go on the opposite and lower your price by 20 cents, increase sales volume dramatically, theoretically, and now you're making more money in total because you're more you're moving more volume of of units. Imagine that, but people are deathly afraid of that, and they 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 keep optimizing for every single unit instead of the the thirty day or the the total profit. It's really interesting. Like so many like businesses, specifically in in the Amazon space that we we know really well, people are leaving so much money on the table because they think they're losing money by lowering a price. Spoken like a true repricer owner. That that is also very true. <laughs> <laughs> no bias there at all. I'm None sure. at all. Yeah. I mean, but the, the the crazy thing about it is it's not even repricing. I mean, really what repricing does is it's it's economics, right? We just we automate economics. But it only works because those economic laws exist. So regardless if I mean, think about it, we could do it for for our price. 
we could jack up the price, the subscription of Aura dramatically and be like, ha ha, users are way more profitable than they were before, but far less people are going to use us. Therefore, we will make less money, right? There's always an optimum. There's always the, the optimized supply demand break-even point, right? Where based off the volume, based off the price point, you make the most amount of money in total than in any other you know, price-volume comparison. That's where we want to get to. And too many sellers go, no, there's no other sellers on this listing. Let's go to my max price, which is like $30 higher than it is now. I'm like, you can sit there all day long, but you're not getting sales. And that was, that was a conversation you and I had actually some time ago where right. there was, there was one, one listing where I became the only person. And my goal at the time was to see how much I could get out of this per order and it became really clear that there wasn't actually a whole lot of extra room above what the going rate was already mm-hmm. before sales started dropping off significantly. You know, there yeah. wasn't maybe squeeze another dollar or two out of it, but it really it really didn't have a meaningful impact on the bottom line. It doesn't. All you get to do is you get to show screenshots of you making 200%, but you don't tell everybody that you only got three of those <laughs> and the average is actually, you know, 80% on average. Now, what you can do is, yeah, if, if based off supply and demand, take advantage of it. Increase your price 10%. I think that's very realistic. And within the Amazon space, just because you can raise your price by $10 and still have the buy box does not mean you're winning, does not mean you're getting sales. Amazon's just like, eh, it's high, but like it's not crazy high. We'll let you have it. But People vote with their dollars. They can very well be like, eh, no, thank you. I'm going to go to this other product because it might be the exact same product or comparable and it's $20 less per unit. Why would I, why would I pay you more? Yeah, it's a very last decade or I guess, I guess I should say now last two decades ago, this is 2020 way of thinking where back then Amazon didn't compare with other retailers. Yeah. And if they did, they didn't do anything about it. No, knowing Amazon is a software company, they probably thought it started thinking about it a long time ago. Whereas now, maybe they've kind of shoved it under the rug because of the the pending lawsuit uh, regarding things like that. But you have to understand that they are still measuring that in some way. Yeah, they might give you the buy box for a while. But once they see that you're marking it up a lot higher than other places, you might start having a problem. And it's this is a it's an issue that those who do retail arbitrage run into all the time and they complain about every day. And it's a valid complaint, but that's more of a problem with your business model than anything else. Don't email me. Um, One thing I ended up doing in my my planning for, you know, how do I build these the shipping costs into into this whole thing and still make a decent profit. I also broke it out by quantity. So if somebody orders two of something or three of something, which happens, how my shipping is going to change because of that. Yeah. How do I, how do I adjust my per unit additional shipping price to accommodate for that while not just totally ripping them off and still making a profit? Yep. Right. And what I actually discovered was that once I changed, there was so that one of my items ships first class package because it's under a pound. When I go to two, it's now over a pound. So I switched to priority mail cubic. But anything above two 
the shipping rate it doesn't really change. It's fixed, right? At all. It's right. Yeah. Because it's not going off of weight until you get above twenty pounds or something like that. Since that's not an issue for me, now all of a sudden I don't have to think about how many it's not a question of how many more dollars do I have to shove into this. It's do I have to change it at all? Really? Can I can I instead just find an average here and just spread it across all of the items? Yeah. You know? How does it look if they want to order one of each, which is also two items, different, different shipping arrangement. You know, this, let's see, let's see how we can make this work, right? What is, what is an average that'll work out across all of these items, all the quantities. And that's more or less what I work off of, right? I have a fixed, a fixed shipping cost per item that covers pretty well as an average across all of the different combinations. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think anymore about it. It, it, it doesn't matter anymore because I know that number is going to work well enough. At the end of the day, I look at, you know, I look at the sales, I look at the profit. All right, that's good. That's going to work for me. I don't, I, I'm not going to spend any more time nickel and diming myself more or less, so to speak. I don't even know if that's a good analogy in this case, but I'm, it's becoming more work than it's worth to try and squeeze anything else out of it as much as I would want to try and figure out this very intricate system where I have shipping templates that are so particular for each item and each quantity and each region, it's not going to make that much of a difference in the long run, especially on the scale of shipping 20, 30 a day. Welcome to shipping and volume, right? This is, (laughs) this is life. Yeah. I, I think something that's important that you mentioned is, and kind of what you were alluding to about like, you know, the nickel and dime is, is too many people, agonize over very small decisions, things that really do not have a positive or negative impact. They're really negligible. But you do that, I think, naturally from a behavioral standpoint because it makes you feel like you're getting a lot done because typically those small, minute things are tedious. So you're like, oh, I got a lot done because that that shipping plan took me four hours today. Man, I'm crushing it. But really, (laughs) would you move the needle by 1%? Great. You could have done something else that moved it by 5%. That took two hours and will last forever, right? And I think looking at averages is incredibly important. Too many people do not know the metrics of their business. Therefore, they cannot do this math, right? I mean, so yeah, if you're moving thousands upon thousands of units and then you can you can actually quantify the benefit, the added profit using something like managerial accounting, which is super easy, by the way, in Excel, and you can you can actually say if i make this decision it will yield x net profit per month and that is a substantial amount you should do that prime example i'm a very big fan of variable cost early on in a business why because they fluctuate as you do and you don't know if this is going to work out why would you as a prime example go sign a warehouse lease for 3 years month 1 of you starting a business makes no sense Instead, what you do is you use prep centers. But Dylan, they're more expensive per unit. Yeah, that's how variable expenses work. But they're cheaper in total. So what you do is you utilize variable costs. But eventually, at some point, you reach a break-even to where if you continue to grow, now the fixed cost is cheaper in total than the variable. So what's interesting, you get to a point where, let's say, the break-even is 800 units per month. You get to 900. So now, if you make a single decision, which is to go open your own warehouse and not use a prep center anymore, 
you now with a single decision made your business more profitable. That's an impactful decision, but people don't view it that way. People don't look at the averages. People don't look at the fact that not every single sale that you have is going to be the exact same because it's not. Some customers are going to be more profitable than other customers. Prime, same thing in software. Some customers heavily use customer support, which is technically an expense. But do you go, oh, you're using support too much? You're not profitable as the others you should leave? No, it's not how this works. Those are people that actually need help, right? There's different segments of your user base. There are people that use our tools that I've never met and they've never reached out and they, they just keep on using it. They know what they're doing. They're good to go. Then there's people that I talk to daily. <laughs> and you know, Both sides of that polarity is awesome. But for me to have the expectation that every single person, every single customer we have is going to be, you know, fit in this perfect little mold is, is incorrect, incredibly incorrect. So you need to be comfortable using tools like Google Sheets or Excel and doing this data analysis, which that's a fancy word for really basic formulas. <laughs> really, you could do it by hand if you want and know your numbers. So you, because if you have, if you have these numbers in mind, you can make very smart data driven decisions. I'm going to beat this into people's heads moving forward now. Data-driven decisions. You don't get to make gut decisions anymore. If you have data, back it up. If, you want to, if, you're, if you're telling me, Dylan, I want to go from a prep center to my own warehouse. Great. Why? Well, it feels right and it's cheaper. How's it cheaper? Per unit? Yeah, I could have told you that. What about in total? You're moving 100 units per month right now. So I can tell you right off the bat, it's not profitable for you. You're moving 10,000 units per month? Yeah, it's probably going to be cheaper. Back it up with math, back it up with data. So whenever you go to analyze, how should I spend my day today? Maybe it's doing the most impactful thing. Maybe it's making a single decision that increases your, your bottom line by 30%. That's pretty cool. Let, let's, let's wrap up on a, on a positive note, though. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said about approaching business in a very detailed manner. And I don't mean detailed in the sense of tedious. Tedious is different. But detailed in the sense of what we were just talking about, right? Make decisions based off data. Be smart about things. Realizing the simple fact that if you can solve more problems than the competition, you can theoretically win. That's it. I've said this for years at this point about wholesale. Everybody's like, oh, it's too competitive. No, it's not. There's tons of people in this business model, but most of them are, I would say 90% of them are unwilling to do the things that actually make this work. So if you operate at a different level, there's actually hardly any competition. And it's easy because you're operating at a higher level. Instead of just saying, here's a problem, my cost is going to go up 50 cents per unit, I'm out. I mean, you can make that decision all day long and then you'll end up not in business. Instead, you should view every single thing as a problem solution, right? What's the problem? Find the optimum solution if you can and move forward. It, I mean, it, that's, that's, I think, spot on. And in this, in my case, in particular, because I'm the only one willing to put in this, this effort to make this product available at this time of year, I get all of the sales. Yeah. 100% of them come my direction. And my post office, which is conveniently across the street, they love me. Because right. I'm basically keeping them open at this point. <laughs> I, I I show up with they're like never move. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Yeah, no, they 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 are super super flexible, and I, I love it. And I know that they appreciate the the volume of packages that I drop off by the hand truck. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to to get to this point if I didn't take this 
you know, initially meticulous planning seriously and find a solution that worked. You know, I could have very well just said, all right, well, it's May 1st. I guess I'm not selling these anymore. Oh, no. What am I going to do? But I didn't. Right. I had found a solution to my problem. People are buying the stuff. Zero complaints, especially in the hot climate so far. No, you know, people are glad that this is available. They're paying what it costs to get it to them. And this is that's it. I, I would love to see more people take it that seriously. But at the same time, please don't, because I like I like <laughs> owning this yeah. space all to myself. The competitive <laughs> advantage. That's it, man. That's the whole thing. Exactly. That's my soapbox for the day. That works. You know, it makes it easy for me in editing, right? I can say, all right, look, there's the Dylan speech. I'm just going to cut out my silence and then fast forward 15 minutes. And- <laughs> for the for those that, that aren't familiar with podcast editing at all, it's, I would say, 40% pulling out the, the obvious vocal issues, like if I stumble over my words and restart my sentence, or background noise, things like that. And then the rest of it is cutting out silence and maybe squishing things together a little bit. Um, and technically and a that, bit of time travel, if you think about it, from an audio yeah. standpoint. Yeah, yeah, more or less. We could just delete There's, like 20 minutes of a conversation and there goes 20 minutes of our lives. I could. It's like it never happened, right? You and I would only, we'd only know if we just happen to remember we even talked about that in the first place and realize, oh, I didn't hear that in the, in the podcast. <laughs> And then you start questioning yourself, wondering if it even happened at all, right? Did it actually, were those words that actually came out of your mouth? Or are you just thinking you said that? And then you go mad, you spiral into insanity, and then the show ends. <laughs>